0: Welcome to Calvary Church, where we are dedicated to loving God and loving people. If you want to know more about us, please check us out online at calvary.ca. Now let's check out this week's message from our lead pastor, Stephen McDonald. Today we continue with our Book of James series as we move forward in the book and look at the wisdom that's found in chapter 2. Now as many of you know, I like to, to bring you messages throughout the year that are kind of brought in different teaching series to help strengthen your faith in, in kind of a memorable way. But a couple of times a year, I also like to focus a series on a specific book of the Bible so that we can actually break it down chapter by chapter and go through it together. So I really look forward to these moments, and this this book study is one of them. So instead of a message with supporting scripture and teaching points, the actual book is the message itself. Now, James is probably the most practical book in the Bible. And what I love about this book is that it explains everyday issues ranging from perseverance under trial uh, to uh, things that we touched on last week, right through to faith and works, temptation, taming the tongue, which is very tricky. Uh, And it gives us a better understanding of things like eternity, of wealth, And the balance between works and grace. Such a great book. And I I love getting into it. Because I, I love the practical teaching of Scripture. And it teaches each of us how to be doers of the Word. Not just hearers. And it's packed full of everyday wisdom that we can put into practice now. As soon as we walk out of the building or even before we walk out of the building. As a matter of fact, some people call this book the Proverbs of the New Testament. So we're taking an entire month to look at the five chapters of this book and break it down together, and and I think it's, it's a great book for the day that we're living in right now. And honestly, you could sit down and read this book in under an hour, from start to finish, and I would encourage all of you to do that to go through this book, to spend time meditating on the chapters that are here as James brings forth this wisdom that each of us need to know. Now, if we look back in our lives, especially at our early years in school, I think we can all remember a teacher, or maybe a few, that were effective because we know that they taught us good things, but we didn't have any fun at all doing it. It was a little painful. As a matter of fact, right now, as I say that, there's probably a few faces and names that are coming up in your, your mind right now. I know for me, as soon as I say that, I have a grade seven math teacher that just suddenly comes to mind. As a matter of fact, she's shown up in a few of my nightmares over the years. It's been some intense times. <laughs> but as a disclaimer, James is a lot like some of those teachers, Very hard-hitting when it comes to the truth. Now, As many of you know, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Not a common thing, certainly. And technically, Joseph was not Jesus' actual biological father. Most of us understand that. Jesus was a a miracle baby, uh, which made for some uncomfortable moments for Joseph back in those days that he had to kind of walk through. But after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph were married and they had children together. And the gospels record those children and one of them is the half half brother of Jesus named James, not the disciple James, but the half brother of Jesus. And James ends up pastoring the church in Jerusalem. But he didn't come to follow Jesus while they were living together. I think that would have been a little awkward. I think some of you probably have a, an older brother, maybe, that tried to convince you that he was God, and maybe that didn't go too well. But in this case, it was actually true, which made for some awkward moments. James would later be converted and become a Christ follower after the resurrection of Jesus, and we see that in 1 Corinthians. And he he goes on to write this beautiful, practical book, and right at the gate, he kind of gives his greetings and says hello, and then he wastes no time at all and just gets into it. So let's continue today with chapter 2. Now for all of us, some scriptural truth is a little easier to accept and digest and process than others, depending on the lens that, that we see the world through. And it becomes a, a little bit more of a difficult process when it confronts something that, that perhaps is deeply rooted in your life. Let's look at James chapter 2. We'll start in verses 1, go through to 4, and then we'll, we'll break for a minute. But it says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Another translation says partiality, which is really the exact opposite of the gospel. So in verse 1, James gives us the exhortation, and now right away he's going to give us the example. In verse 2, he says, suppose a man in your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. He's talking about a a wealthy individual, right? A man dressed for success, GQ. He looks good, smells good, and he's very confident. So they say, suppose this man uh, and a poor man who is filthy with his clothes also comes in to your meeting. And this guy's the kind of guy that maybe looks like he slept in the alleyway. Maybe he looks bad. Maybe he smells bad. Maybe he feels bad and he's timid and shy and doesn't want to talk to anybody. But verse 3 says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here's a good seat for you right over here. Come right down to the front. But then you say to the poor man, you stand right where you're at. Maybe you could sit on the floor at my feet. Have you not discriminated? There's a hot word in the media today, discrimination. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I want to be careful, again, for you not to kind of disengage at this point uh, by thinking that James is talking about somebody that's not you, right? You might say, well, I don't have a problem with, with the poor. As a matter of fact, I serve on our outreach team and serve soup and sandwiches to our street friends a couple of times a month. But this text is not just addressing the relationship between the rich and the poor, but rather James is using it as an example of how we treat people that are different from us. So let's look at it a little bit differently. What if the scripture said something like, suppose someone who looks and sounds just like you comes into your meeting And then someone else with different politics than you or different beliefs or someone from another country maybe that you're afraid of, what if that person also comes in? And if you show special attention to the person who looks and sounds just like you and you say, hey, here's a great seat over here, come and sit with me. And then you say to the person with different politics and beliefs from a country that you're unsure of or maybe you're afraid of, if you say to that person, well, why don't you stand over there uh, because maybe you'd be comfortable somewhere else. a matter of fact, why don't you just go to a different church, because maybe you'd be comfortable there too. The scripture would say, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is not pulling any punches here. He's talking, he's getting right to the heart of the matter. Now, in case we need to go a little bit deeper, be a little bit more specific, let's look at this. Have I not discriminated or judged others if I choose only to be friends with those who are pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine? Should I stop talking to my, my friend from high school who now identifies as a woman when he was born a man and he was the prom king and the captain of the, of the, the hockey team? Or maybe I should stop getting my hair cut from my Iranian barber because... He comes from a nation that's involved in a conflict and war against another nation that maybe I support and pray for and stand with. Once again, my my point is this. The example that James gives in verse 2 through 4 is one example of many. Jesus is warning all of us against prejudice or favoritism. But there are many ways that that can show up in our lives. And if we don't realize this, we can read this scripture in James and immediately think, well, that's that's for someone else. That's for you, not for, for me. And each of us, I think, need to guard our hearts against that favoritism, that discrimination that creeps in because it looks very different in all of our lives. Each of us feel differently. The truth is you can be partial whether you're rich or you're poor. But God's grace and love is for all people, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, their education, their beauty, or their economic status. How can those lost in darkness experience the light unless you are there to let it shine? You see, the law of love supersedes our personal preferences to embrace those who are lost and in need of a savior. The law of love should always rise above. Then let's look at James 2, 8 through 9. It says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Again, James is getting right to the point. Jesus gave each of us a seat at, at his table. He made us feel at home. He made us feel welcome, a part of his family. So who are we to judge other people who are different from us when they're invited to sit there too? We're one church. We're many nations. That's, I believe, one of the miracle strengths of our church, that in all our differences we hold him and our faith in Christ in common. The law of love unites us and holds us together. Romans 3, Through 23 says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what do we have in common? Well, we all share sin in common. We're all sinners. And Jesus came to die for every sinner so that they could be forgiven. We need to welcome others as Jesus welcomed us. James 2, 12 to 13 says, So whenever you speak or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law of love, the law that set you free. For there will be no mercy for you if you have not been merciful to others. That's very strong. It says, but if you have been merciful, then God's mercy towards you will win out over his judgment against you. You see, the true test of our faith is, is that it moves us beyond what we say to cause us to act and to do something. Are our words and our deeds governed by the law of love that James is talking about here? In Ephesians 2, 8-9, Paul tells us that we're saved by faith alone. So this can be a little bit confusing. Because then along comes James, and he says it's not just faith, but it's faith and works. So who's right? They seem to be contradicting one another. Well, both are actually right. Don't confuse how Paul talks about works and James talks about works. They're coming from a different context. Paul was fighting the problem of legalism. Those who thought that they could earn God's favor through the things that they did. The more I do, the more holy I am. But it's different here. James is not fighting legalism. He's actually fighting, kind of fighting laziness. Those that say, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you believe. As a matter of fact, even Paul says that we're created for good works in Ephesians 2.10. But James says in verse 17 that faith and action go hand in hand. Without works, faith is, is actually dead. In other words, James is saying a faith that saves is also a faith that serves. Very powerful when we understand that. He's saying faith uh, that stands alone without works is not effective at all. True faith is, is always or should always be producing action in our lives. You're not saved by the work that you do. The work you do is a result of being saved. But what does James say about how real faith actually works? Well, the first thing he tells us is that real faith is is more than empty confession James two fourteen says what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds can such faith save them real faith is not just something you say talk is cheap and there's a lot of it today talk is very cheap it must go beyond those words Number two, real faith is more than false compassion. James two, fifteen to 17 says, Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Bam! That's James. Again, just calling it, what it is he's saying real faith is more than than just a feeling it's always there's it's more than that just that empty feeling of i've just said some words and it falls flat there's no commitment that goes with it real faith is much more real faith causes change real faith involves you be like me seeing you at church today and walking out to the parking lot And as you get to your car and you open your car, you end up slamming the door on your fingers. And you're standing there in agony with blood kind of dripping down onto the pavement. And I walk up and say, wow, see, I really feel bad for you right now. Is that helpful to you? I don't think in that moment it is. You see, real faith and works is moved with compassion. And it's compelled to do something, to act. Hey, let me help you. Let me get that bound up and cleaned off. Let me get you the help that you need. We need to move to action. Now, I realize we can't meet everyone's need. It's absolutely impossible. But we can meet somebody's. Even Jesus didn't meet everybody's needs, even though he was well able to do that. But he did meet some. James is saying that if my faith doesn't lead me to share with others, then something is wrong. Number three, real faith is more than shallow conviction. People are driven by their convictions. If we have deep biblical convictions, then it will have a positive impact in our lives. We'll see that change takes, take place. In the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 18, it says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Your conviction will determine your attitude, your course, your action, and your affection. Number four, real faith is more than saying you believe in God. James 2, 19 and 20 says, you believe that there is one God. Good. It's as if James was saying, you know what? Is that supposed to impress me that that you believe that? Then he goes on to say, even the demons believe that, and they shudder with their actions to back up what you believe by saying, well, I, I believe in God. I meet people all the time. I'm sure you do, too, that say, well, I, I believe in God. Well, James is saying, well, you know what? You're, you're actually no different than the demons. That's, again, very harsh, because even they understand and believe. And then he says, you foolish person, or another translation just says, fool, fool. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Number five, real faith is made complete by works. In the next five verses, right to the end of chapter two, James gives two illustrations that that clearly kind of say that faith is something also that you do. Faith is active. It's not passive. It's, It's commitment. He gives two illustrations of two very different people talks about Abraham and Rahab, exact kind of opposites uh, in, the, in their extreme. Abraham is a man, Rahab is a woman. Abraham is Jewish, Rahab is a Gentile. Abraham is a patriarch, Rahab is a, a prostitute. Abraham is a somebody. Rahab, to most people, was a nobody. Abraham is a major character in the Bible and Rahab was a minor character. But James uses these illustrations to say it doesn't matter who you are as long as you have the most important thing. The only thing that these two people had in common was their faith in God. Their faith in God that that led them both to a place of action, to do something. James 2.26, as the body... Without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. May God help each one of us not to to show favoritism in our lives, but to love others as he loved us and to allow our faith to produce works as we move and act. You know what? Again, the law of love should always supersede discrimination and judgmental attitudes towards other people. The law of love is, is busy building bridges bridges, and, and, and acts. It's doing something. Instead of burning those bridges down and standing by and doing absolutely nothing. The law of love also doesn't mean that we agree with everybody. But it does mean that we treat them with respect and love as Jesus did. Because within that relational moment is an opportunity to let our lives shine and to see the potential for a life to be forever changed for eternity. God wants to use you when your life is, is governed by the law of love. These are wonderful, uh, practical example, examples of the kind of wisdom that James is trying to, to convey. So let's stop there for this week, and, and next week we're going to pick it up with uh, chapters 3 and 4. But let's pray today before we close. Father, we thank you today for the law of love. I thank you for the the love that you demonstrated to each one of us that we need to walk in. Help us not to be judgmental, not to to live a life of discrimination, but to act as you did, to allow our faith to move past the place of of just an outward appearance of holiness to a place where our compassion moves us forward. It compels us to take action and to love those around us. We thank you today for your word, for how practical and powerful it is within us, for these words that James gives us that, that we're growing and living by. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. God's best, Calvary.